And that's a scene from Degrassi, The Next Generation. We've been talking about issues that face students here at Lawrence Park, so who better to ask than the cast members of Degrassi, The Next Generation, on the morning of the eve of the big show season premiere tonight. Um, Sarah, and I want to get this out, so uh, Bearable Tishower yep. um, joins us here, and we've got Lauren Collins, Ryan Cooley, and Aubrey Graham, and of course you pay, play Liberty, and Paige, and JT, and Jimmy. You know, and one of the, the reasons for the success of this whole Degrassi franchise has been that it's never shied away from dealing with the issues that students really do face in high school, and some of them pretty difficult ones, like your character, Jimmy, last season, um, landed in a wheelchair because of a, a shooting. Difficult scene to prepare for? Um, def definitely something to um, to like reach for as as an actor. I mean, it's uh, it's it's kind of hard when you at the end of the day get to walk away. I mean, you get to get up out of the chair. Hint ahead for tonight, or what your character is going to face? Um, Are you allowed to give us a hint? I can't. I can't. I can't really give too much <laughs> of a hint. <laughs> I can't really give too much of a hint, but um, I can definitely tell you that um, I started a very low place this season. But throughout it, I build as a person, and it's it's gonna be a, it's gonna be a wonderful season overall for everybody on the panel. Welcome to D Next, the Innovation and Entrepreneurs Podcast, and I'm your host, Paul Coides. On this episode, we speak with Linda Schuyler, co-creator of Degrassi. Linda, thank you very much for joining us for D-Next. I can't tell you how happy I am that you're making the time for this, so thank you. Well, it's my pleasure. I'm happy to speak to you. Linda, I, I want to start maybe with a big kind of uh, philosophical question, which is what I'm known to do, but you're such an integral part of, I suppose, the Canadian identity and story with the work that you've done. My question is, uh, looking at this in 2021, are you happy with what Degrassi has become? <laughs> oh, how could I not be? Um, you know, I, I know we're going to talk more about this, but it had never been my intention when I first made my first film that I would ultimately have a um, series that became a franchise that had international distribution. Um, so I, I, I couldn't, I couldn't be happier. I mean, I'm happy for how it's been distributed internationally. Um, I'm happy for the responses that we get back from our young viewers, that we seem to strike a chord with them and have engaged them in ongoing um, dialogue and discussion, which makes me very, very happy. So just, just by the numbers, and just so we understand this, how, how big is Degrassi's reach. Do you have any uh, data you can share in terms of I don't know, how many countries or broadcasts, that kind of thing? Oh my goodness. Well, first of all, it the very first Degrassi went on air in 1980. So we're talking about a franchise that has had over a 40 year, you know, it wasn't produced continuously over that time, but it's had sort of a, a 40 year footprint. And um, it's very hard to know exactly how many countries because I think we were at about 140 countries around the world and then when we um, for the last couple of years under the title Degrassi Next Class we were carried on Netflix 
So we know that that's a huge international uh, reach. And not only were we on Netflix, but we were um, uh, we were uh, dubbed into multiple languages. I mean, what a testament. Why do you think it means so much to people? Um, I've thought about that a lot over the years. And, you know, you, you engage any adult. And if you say to them, tell me about your high school years, they'll all go, oh my God, I remember them so vividly, or oh my God, I don't want to recall them right now. It's those four or five years when we're in high school are such an intense period of our lives. Probably, I mean, we're, we're constantly evolving, of course, as, as, as we age, but those, that time in your life when you make the transition from being a child to a young adult, there's so much happening in your body, in your mind. Um, you know, you're, you're physically changing, your brain is um, changing. And that experience of moving from being a child to being an adult is common to everybody in the world. It doesn't matter what language you speak. It doesn't matter what country you live in. We all have to live those awkward moments. And, and I think that's probably what captures people's imagination when they see it in multiple countries around the world. So speaking of change then, how, and looking back to when you first started, how do you think the world has changed since you began this journey? And how do you think perhaps you have helped to change it? <laughs> well, first of all, let's think about when I did the original Degrassi series, which I fondly call Degrassi Classic. Um, kids had no computers in their bedrooms. They had no tablets. If they wanted to have a private conversation on the telephone, they would sort of have to yank the cord as far as they could and get themselves into a closet or somewhere for some privacy. The, the way that technology has changed over the years is incredible. Um, and, and we all know that, you know, this whole new generation that we've got of digital natives, it, their lives are just tablets and computers are a part of their life. And, and, and the interesting thing for me is as we've grown and evolved with Degrassi, it's been incredibly important to keep up with all those changes because our young people are in the forefront of um, being early adopters of all this, um, all this new technology. So I found that it was very important for us to, in order to stay authentic, to keep ahead of all these technological changes, but simultaneously, um, the whole notion of uh, living through becoming a child to an adult and having all those first experiences, whether it's your first date, whether it's your first kiss, getting your first period, having your first wet dream, those are like constants. So I have found it a very interesting exercise over the years to keep, uh, keep in step with how the world around my young people is changing, but at the same time, hold on to the heart and the soul of what it really means to be a teenager. Do you feel that you were pushing limits back then content wise? And do you feel that you have some uh, great responsibility to make sure you deliver something that's authentic? Um, certainly pushing the envelope 
content wise. I mean, the, the N where we used to run, um, the N is part of um, the Viacom group of channels that we ran on for 14 years. And their tagline for us was Degrassi, it goes there. <laughs> right, um, I remember, yes. <laughs> and that, that's, that's pretty, um, that's pretty, that's pretty much capsulizes where we we were but I, what i i want to make a distinction though because if you say the show goes there it sounds like you might want to be sensational and my whole thing is very important to me over the years that we had to be very current and we had to be not afraid to take on big topics but it, it I never looked at it as though we were doing rip from the headlines in order to be sensational. We were talking about these things, whether it be um, questioning of your sexuality, whether it be child abuse. We looked at it at a real personal level. Our stories were really personal and intimate um, because it was also very important not to be sensational, but also not to downplay it. It was very important to acknowledge that these things were very important pieces of young people's lives and we needed to honor those um, and not just dismiss it quickly either. Given the ground that was broken uh, and looking at this today, I imagine that there's a lot of what they call multi-generational viewers. So parents and kids being able to watch this at the same time because uh, maybe these parents were of that age when they first started watching uh, Degrassi and you know the world has changed. Is there a core philosophy at work here um, that has been the same from when you started uh, to today? Have you articulated that in some way? Well, I sometimes look at Degrassi as the world's longest running anti-bullying campaign. Hmm. Um, because one of the things that we're trying to do for young people is reassure them that they are not alone and reassure them that their voice matters. And so many people have been bullied or, or because they're, they're maybe perceived as a little bit different. And our mandate is to, you know, reassure people that we all feel like we're a little different at times and that that's, that's all right. And the, you mentioned the intergenerational um, aspect of Degrassi. What I love is that um, I've heard there be some fights between moms and daughters and fathers and sons when they say, oh, the son might say, Degrassi, the next generation, it's like the best ever. And the parent will say to them, oh no, Degrassi classic. That was it. <laughs> Degrassi junior high, Degrassi high. Um, so sometimes like we've got in a, a family, two generations who have, have latched on to different pieces of our show. And I, I will tell you a, an anecdote that I really, really appreciated. Um, we had done a, um, an episode about young women giving blowjobs for favors, right. and um, which is something that we all know they shouldn't be doing. But we, we told a story about this. And the day after it went on air, I got a call from an old school friend of mine who I hadn't spoken to for years. And she said, Linda, I just have to call you up and thank you for that episode that you had done with these young girls. She said, 
I've been aware of this going on and I haven't known how to broach the conversation with my daughter. And at the end of your show, we sat down and we had a good heart to heart. And I don't know how I would have had that conversation without your show having been the impetus for it. And again, just a, a true testament to, to what you've been able to create. Do you, do you think you could have made this series somewhere else in the world? What Was Canada the right place to do this uh, at the time? There is no question about that, Paul. Um, we used to have periodic um, special dinners with our American broadcaster once or twice a year. And I remember one night we were sitting around and we were enjoying a great meal and drinking some wine. And they said to me, you know, we couldn't have created this show in the States. There is a sensibility, there is a, a, a liberalness to the storytelling that we're so happy to be able to air it on our network, but we don't think that this kind of storytelling could have been made in the States. And, and that to me was, was really interesting. And also um, just from a financial point of view, I feel that over the years, I have been so supportive by various levels of government, whether it's provincial or federal with the, um, with the abilities that are there to have equity investment into your shows or tax credits, um, whatever the, the form might take, I've been the beneficiary of some tremendous government incentives, which again, um, we couldn't have done the show without. So I, I think there's a, a, a sensibility that is very definitely Canadian. I think that there has been support on a financial side. Um, yeah, and, and you know, for, it's, for me, it's quite lovely because I'm a British immigrant. And when I grew up, um, I was teased unmercifully for being an immigrant and people laughed at my accent and all of that. And yet, you know, I feel only in Canada have, would I get the opportunity to uh, have created something like Degrassi, which as I said, became the ultimate anti-bullying message, which made me feel good and got some vindication to the bullies who used to kick me around in grade three. The karma. Well, when, <laughs> when, you, when you see the success then of now, of things like Kim's uh, Convenience, Schitt's Creek, which I swept the Emmys and I believe is uh, gonna do something similar for the Golden Globes and right. uh, other shows of that, a lot of this path uh, was carved by the hard work that was done through the Degrassi franchise. Is this true or false? Well, there's no, first of all, I'm so proud of um, Kim's Convenience and um, Schitt's Creek. It's, it's so wonderful to see our Canadian shows going on to do so well. Um, Yes, like, like anything, they've all benefited from those of us who have come before. And it wasn't just Degrassi. There were many of my um, peers who were also doing great work over that time. Um, but yes, we, we hope our industry just keeps growing. And, and a little piece that I love is you mentioned those two shows. Well, both, um, um, is it Paul uh, Sung Young Lee, who plays in uh, King's Convenience, before he started that, he had a um, two-season reoccurring role in Degrassi. Uh, he owned our uh, Little Mistakes where the kids hung out. And um, for Dan Levy, who, as we know from Schitt's Creek, uh, we gave him his first scripted um, opportunity in Degrassi Goes Hollywood. So I feel a little, um, I feel a little bit good about watching those guys go on. And 
and there's certainly other famous careers that have started from from the franchise. Oh, are you talking maybe Aubrey Graham, who we uh, know affectionately Drake? <laughs> and I mean, what a what an amazing story that is. And I think again too, when you look at the Canadian music industry, which is dominating uh, the world now in terms of the top five, I think music artists uh, are from this area with television. I mean, th this is all connected in my mind. Is it is it because of a a culture and openness, uh, all sorts of things that have come together to allow this to happen? That's a big question, isn't it? Um, I really, I don't really know the answer to that. Um, I, I know that we have created, I mean, I talk about my experience as being an immigrant and let's face it, this whole country is built on immigrants. And I, I think that there is an environment here that you you can you can succeed, you can go for it. Um, you can dream big and you can push. You don't always make it, but this is a country of dreams and um, dreams and dreamers and people who make their dreams happen. Do you see yourself as an entrepreneur in the true sense of the word? Oh, without question. <laughs> And how 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 do we cultivate more of you, more entrepreneurs in this area? So what's what's tell me a bit more about that experience. Um, well, first of all, I became an entrepreneur not because I woke up one morning and thought I want to run my own business. I became an entrepreneur because I had wanted to tell stories, and I didn't see any other place that I could go to tell these stories. I mean, I, I knew I could get them on the CBC and, and, and sell them to a broadcaster, but I needed to make these shows and to make them, it just seemed logical. I needed to start my own company. And uh, it's certainly as an entrepreneur, um, doesn't matter what business you're in, what widgets you might be selling or making, it's um, not, it's not a realm for the faint of heart. There is huge responsibility towards the people that you hire, to paying them on time, to having responsibility to your suppliers, to um, creating a work environment where people can buy into your vision and do their best work. So um, I, I constantly think about my life having become an entrepreneur in order to be a storyteller that my life is constantly juggling between my left brain and my right brain. And I actually thrive on that. We talked a little bit about technology at the opening of this. Um, how do you see technology and the media world changing now? And what new frontiers could this be opening for storytellers? Um, well, first of all, who knows what the next big thing is going to be? I mean, we've seen such accelerated um, changes happen over the last few years in terms of technology, how our, um, how our shows are delivered to us, how we communicate with one another. Um, but I, it's a little bit like my initial comment when I said, you know, all this technology was changing for Degrassi, but we also had to keep true to the heart and soul of our authentic storytelling. And I think that for it doesn't really matter whether your show is going to go um, on traditional broadcasting, whether it's going to go um, be streamed, whether it will come on YouTube, 
uh, whatever platform it might be on, it's got to be all about the story. And it's story that will that will drive our whole next generation of producers. And it's story that will uh, capture the imagination of our next generation of audience. So would it be fair to say then, if the question is, is the future of the media industry bright or bleak? Uh, a lot of that has to do with the stories that we tell. Oh, no question. It doesn't, because it doesn't matter at the end of the day what the delivery platform is. Um, as long as people have stories to tell and stories that come from the heart and stories that have passion and stories that are funny and stories that reflect ourselves to ourselves and stories that let us live a life that we experience a life that we couldn't otherwise have imagined. That's all the stuff of imagination and that's all the magic side of this. And um, as, long as, as long as there are human beings, regardless of the delivery mechanism, we're all gonna wanna tell stories to one another and we're all gonna wanna listen to one another's stories. So are there stories that you haven't told yet? Or that's another way of me asking, if you can tell us maybe what you're working on now. <laughs> well, I'm working on a story that actually is very personal. I am writing my autobiography. Oh, that's excellent. <laughs> yes, and it's a perfect time to be doing that in times of COVID. Do you, is this uh, harder for you to tell your own story than to tell others? Or what's this process like for you? Oh, uh, it's, this is a very painful process. Um, let me produce uh, an episode of Degrassi any day. Um, <laughs> part of it is, as a producer, I've had the wonderful opportunity to work with some great writers. I have the opportunity to read their early drafts of scripts, talk to them about how we might change it, how we might make it better, and they go away and they do the work. Now I have these great conversations with myself about, oh, we should do this with, you know, Linda, you should include this in your book, you should include that. And there's nobody else to go do it, except I have to do it myself. The, uh, uh, I imagine that as you go through this, you're probably finding a lot of similarities in terms of some of the topics that you covered during your career in the series, and maybe discovered some new ones and, and with this new perspective. With all of this in mind, and given what you just said, in terms of final thoughts, is there one big piece of advice that you can give to the next generation of storytellers and entrepreneurs and producers in this country? Well, when you're a storyteller and when you're an entrepreneur, in both cases, you put yourself out there. And when you put yourself out there, you're at risk of people not liking you. You're at risk of um, having troubles with the bank. There's risk. And um, so if you're going to take those kinds of risks, then you better know why you're doing it. And for me, it was, I knew why I wanted to tell these stories. I, I, I wanted to tell stories that were going to reassure young people that they weren't alone and hopefully give them some tools and a little bit of fun to help them along through those years. And whenever I would get bogged down with the mechanics of running my business, I would have to bring myself back to first principles. In fact, I used to keep a couple of rather large black binders behind my desk and it contained emails and letters from people over the years who had sent me in responses to Degrassi. And when I would 
I would, when I would be holed up in my office wondering how am I going to make payroll, how am I going to, um, you know, keep my people going, uh, I would have to pull out those books and remind myself why I'm doing this. And um, so my, I guess my only piece of advice is, you know, if you've got, you have, you have to be really focused in terms of why you're doing what you're doing, because you need to get through some really, really rough times in order to enjoy the good times. Is this like having a North Star uh, in terms of the work that you're doing? Just something that always keeps you moving forward on a path that makes the most sense uh, to you? Yeah, I guess. I mean, I've never really thought about my North Star. Perhaps that's a nice, perhaps I will bring that into my thinking now. Um, but it is, uh, it, it's very easy in the complexity of running an own business, in the complexity of working in the realm of television. I mean, there's so many moving parts in the world of television, as you well know. And it's easy to get caught up in um, the complexity of the minutia and lose sight of why you're there in the first place. And it's just very important once in a while to bring yourself back down and say, wait a moment, I'm doing this because and when you can answer that then you can get up the next day and worry about the bank and everything else yeah i think that's a perfect way to end this session what an honest and insightful and i think this is going to inspire a lot of people uh and i want to thank you very much linda for joining us today it's been really uh truly my honor to have you with us oh thank you so much well it's been my pleasure to talk with you Thanks for listening. For more information about this series, Degrassi, or to hear any of our other masterclass audio from this series, please visit us at dnextnow.com. Until next time.